the brain can really control what's going on in the body, even in rather extreme circumstances. The major evolutionary advantage we have as humans is this big brain on the top of our bodies. It's connected to every organ in the body, but it doesn't come with a user's manual. And so we don't take full advantage of what it can do. And we underestimate, we tend to think that the real treatments in medicine are ingestion, injection, or incision. You know, the, the body is like a broken car. You just replace the part and everything will be fine. And otherwise, you're not really doing anything. You're just talking to the person. People worry hypnosis means losing control. It doesn't. It means enhancing control of your brain and of your experience. So part of what gives truth to what they're experiencing is they're feeling in control when they're doing it. And they're saying, you know, I know what I could control. I, can, I have to face what I couldn't control. Frankly, that's the only way we humans are going to survive. We have to face our own vulnerabilities. Having the strength and ability to face it strengthens you. It doesn't weaken you. The Rich Roll Podcast. Today, we're gonna to talk about hypnosis, the science and neurobiology of what today's guest calls transformation, trance with a C-E, and the many efficacious use cases for it. We're gonna do it with perhaps the world's leading researcher and clinician in the field of hypnosis, Dr. David Spiegel. Dr. Spiegel is the Associate Chair of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine, he is also the director of the Stanford Center on Stress and Health. He has published over 480 journal articles, 170 book chapters on hypnosis, and 13 books. Like I said, an absolute world expert. This one is truly fascinating. It's mind bending and mind expanding, and it's coming right up, but first. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that 
it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made. And that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fairtrade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic Fairtrade cotton. Birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on Birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive, and the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple, search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. Okay, hypnosis. So let's face it, it's a loaded term. It's uh, a term we unfortunately associate with parlor tricks, but as you will shortly discover, scientific hypnosis termed clinical hypnosis as opposed to stage hypnosis is very much a real thing and an efficacious therapeutic protocol that induces a unique brain state that can be leveraged to improve quite quickly, I might add, everything from sleep states to high performance. It can be a powerful tool against addiction and a very effective means to ameliorate symptoms related to trauma, anxiety, chronic pain, and more. Today, we get into the science and neurobiology of hypnosis, meaning what exactly transpires in the brain 
during a hypnotic state, as well as the many use cases for hypnosis. We talk about the differences between hypnosis, mindfulness, visualization, and so-called flow states, why some people are more hypnotizable than others. We talk about the critical role that breath plays in hypnosis, how hypnosis can be used to induce an optimal state of high performance, and the mind-body connection incident to hypnosis. Finally, Dr. Spiegel imparts helpful tools for self-hypnosis, including a simple test to gauge your own receptivity to hypnosis, as well as reference to the Reverie mobile app, which is a tool developed by Dr. Spiegel and his lab at Stanford, which you can find in the iOS app store. The app has a nominal cost, but Dr. Spiegel and his team were kind enough to offer all of you a special discount on the Reverie service. To take advantage of that discount, go to reverie.com slash richroll for 30% off a yearly or lifetime membership. And the Reverie app is now available on Android and iOS devices. That's reverie, R-E-V-E-R-I.com slash richroll for 30% off. You can also find the offer in the show notes on the episode page at richroll.com. I should add that I received no benefit from this offer. It's simply a gift to you for listening and perhaps a nudge to check it out. And with that, please enjoy what I think you will find to be a truly fascinating conversation with Dr. David Spiegel. Well, David, it's a, it's a delight to meet you. I appreciate our mutual friend, Dr. Andrew Huberman, introducing us. Uh, I'm really excited to talk to you today. Before we get into anything though, I think it's important to point out uh, one specific thing for clarity purposes, which is that you are not the psychiatrist, David Spiegel, who testified for Amber Heard in the Johnny Depp trial, correct? <laughs> Correct, Your Honor. Yeah. I'm. I'm. Uh, I can't help but ask. Uh, were Were you confused with him? Did you end up, you know, on the receiving end of some nasty threats and such? I. I um, so far, not nasty threats. I did my <laughs> my star rating went down temporarily at Stanford because some people pretended that they wow. had seen me clinically and gave me a terrible rating. Um, I was having dinner with, we invited some friends over and this one of my friends, a very bright woman who says what she thinks. She said, now, David, you told me that psychiatrists cannot make render opinions about people they have not examined. And yet today you testified in court. <laughs> about him and about uh -huh. his, you know, how he must have done it because he played a pirate somewhere, you know? And I said, I did not. And I, so then she showed me the video and it was the first that I knew of it. I didn't know mm -hmm. this guy existed, David R. Spiegel. I don't have a middle name, so right. I'm not David R. And then there've been a couple of things on, you know, in the uh, social media space about how apparently her lawyer got advice to hire me Mm. and um, looked up David Spiegel and found this guy who was in Eastern Virginia Medical School. And she thought, oh, well, he's nearby, won't cost much, you know, I'll just get him to do it. That's great. Wow, the plot thickens. So and you were actually meant to be the person. That's, I don't know that for sure. I was never called, I was never contacted, but apparently several people had got information that the lawyer who made the, who mentioned the name called her up afterwards and said, I told you David Spiegel from Stanford. 
And she said, oh shit, you know, this is bad news. Wow, well, you dodged a bullet. Not that yeah. you would have agreed to do that no, in the first place, but um, yeah, it was a very interesting kind of social phenomenon, the manner in which, you know, social media bifurcated over that case and armies of people lined up to defend and attack. Yeah. Yeah, and you happen to be kind of uh, collateral <laughs> damage to some extent. Well, you know, that. I got two kinds of emails. One kind <laughs> said, I couldn't possibly be you. I know you, I know what your work is like. I know your research. It could, that could not, you could not have been the David Spiegel one, so thanks. Mm-hmm. Well, the, a simple, cur- yeah. sorry to interject, yeah, but no. a simple cursory Google search, you could see the guy, there's video yeah, of him, right, you know, it's right. easily discernible. And <laughs> I got a couple other emails saying, Good for you. You said exactly what should have been said. Congratulations. <laughs> I thought, okay. Yeah. Well, that's like a uh, you know a psychological experiment unto itself. It is. It is. Yeah. You know the. I mean, we're learning a lot about how people can affiliate with false beliefs of various kinds. So yeah. Well, there's a there's a meta conversation to be had around that for you sure. Bet. You bet. Um, perhaps for another day, because today we're going to focus on hypnosis the myths, the truths, the science. And so I think it, it's important just out of the gate to define what it is we mean when we say hypnosis, the difference between stage hypnosis, clinical hypnosis, and, and perhaps provide kind of a, a cursory glance at, at your research and clinical work. Sure, I'd be happy to do that. Um, if you've ever gotten so caught up in a good movie that you forget you're watching a movie, you enter the imagined world, you're part of the film, not the audience. That's a hypnotic-like state. It's a state of highly focused attention with reduced peripheral awareness. So in order to really engage fully, you have to decide you're not gonna be worried about what you have to do later in the day. You're not gonna pay attention to anything else. You're gonna narrow your focus. And that has a couple of consequences. It lets you think very clearly, very well. It also gives you a kind of cognitive flexibility that used to be called suggestibility, you know, and people worry about that, you know, Mm -hmm. can you make me think I'm a chicken and do all kinds of foolish things. And um, it, it, that, but that also means you're willing to approach an old situation from a new point of view to see it differently. If you intensely focus, if you suspend judgment, you can learn. And so it's also a very good situation to be in if you're engaging in a good kind of psychotherapy, for example. You won't immediately dismiss some new idea because it's new or different. The third thing, so there's this intense absorption, there's this cognitive flexibility, and the third thing is dissociation. So you let go of what this means for who you think you are and you just kind of do it. You can detach yourself. Now, people spontaneously dissociate in situations of stress or trauma, for example, mm-hmm. this can't be happening to me. And you know, many uh, rape victims uh, experience the rape as if they're floating above their bodies, feeling sorry for what's happening to the person below. And that can be protective. It can keep you from having to engage in the worst aspects of a traumatic situation when it's happening. But you can induce that with hypnosis. Now, we normally dissociate to a certain extent. Right now, you're having sensations in your bottom touching the chair across from me, but hopefully you were not even aware of that until I mentioned it to you. If you were, we can stop the interview now. And you know, yeah. um, So we do that as a way of allocating our attentional resources where we want and not where we don't want. And in hypnosis, you intensify those three things and that allows you to concentrate intently to have profound effects on mind and body and to alter your approach to problems. So 
That's what hypnosis is. It's a naturally occurring experience. It doesn't just happen when I dangle a watch and try. We don't, you know, digital watches don't dangle very well anyway, mm-hmm. so we don't do that. But it's a it's a, an unusual state that many people can get into, and people who are hypnotizable get into naturally. So people who are more hypnotizable get lost in sunsets. You know, they uh, get absorbed in movies. They miss dinner because they're so busy working on something. That capacity to deeply allocate your attentional resources is something that happens in hypnosis. Yeah, I definitely wanna put a pin and drill down on this notion of hypnotizability, but prior to that, sure. um, as we're kind of defining what we, what we mean when we talk about hypnosis, what you just described is clinical hypnosis. Right. We're mostly familiar with this idea of of stage hypnosis, the parlor trick version of it that right. you know is the is the ire of your existence, I'm sure. Um, mm-hmm. But how are these two things different? And you know, sort of talk a little bit about maybe that's a, a larger discussion about the history of this modality. Sure. Well, uh, it might be, that might be a good uh, way to frame it, uh, Rich, because hypnosis is the oldest Western conception of a psychotherapy. It's the first time that a talking interaction uh, was thought to have therapeutic potential. Uh, And it started 250 years ago with Franz Anton Mesmer in in Austria. He thought that he, he would provoke what looked like seizures. He would take people next to the what they called paquets full of metal filings with a slight magnetic field and they would start to shake and some would faint and he would use it to treat a whole variety of what we would then we would call psychiatric and medical problems mm-hmm. he became very popular in vienna so of course he left his wife and family there and moved to paris where he started competing with the French physicians of the day. And, you know, uh, Voltaire wrote to his brother when his father was dying, we did everything we could to save father's life. We even sent the doctors away. And the main treatment in France at the time was bloodletting. So if you stayed away from a French doctor by going to Mesmer, you would do better. And he became very popular in Paris. But his theory about why it happened was criticized correctly, that the the hypnotist doesn't project a magnetic field Mm -hmm. on someone. Wasn't it also about moving fluids into balance? Yes, that's right. So rearranging the the balance of of magnetically charged fluids Mm -hmm. in the body and the hypnotist magnetism could, he called it animal magnetism at the time. So the theory, uh, the phenomenon was interesting. The theory was wrong. He was examined at King Louis' behest by a French panel of experts that included our own Benjamin Franklin, who was having a lot of fun in Paris at the time. Right. The brilliant French chemist Lavoisier, who discovered, you know, defined oxygen chemistry and also invented the concept of the gross national product shortly before he was beheaded in the French Revolution. Mm -hmm. Hence the term mesmerized. Mesmerized, that's it. To be mesmerized. And the other person on the panel was a guy uh, well known for his work on um, on separating the mind from the body, Guillotin, Dr. Guillotin, who invented the guillotine, was also on this panel. Wow. He created the mind-body problem in a sense. And, and so that was a damaging blow to hypnosis for, for many, many decades. And was that a scenario in which Mesmer would go to kind of fancy dinner parties and 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 do it in you know kind of highfalutin groups of high society no, people? He, Mesmer was not a stage hypnotist. He was he was a dedicated healer. And one of the things that would notify that was was noted about his offices 
were that they were cheerful and bright and there would be other patients teaching new patients about mm. what they learned. Unlike French physicians who had these dark, grim, bare offices that you kind of felt like you were gonna get sicker there. And in Mesmer, he created this positive expectation. He was not a stage hypnotist, but it led, his work led to stage hypnosis. And these guys, one trick that most people don't realize that they do, you know, they make it seem that they could do this to anybody and they can get the football coach dancing like a ballerina or somebody quacking like a duck or lying between stiff between two chairs. They always screen a large number of people um, and they bring them up, they try out a few things. Most of them go back and sit down or they'll say to somebody in the audience when they give a suggestion to the audience, if you noticed your neighbor reacting a lot, let me know. And so what they do is they go through the large number of people to get to the 10 or 15% who are very hypnotizable. Mm. And that's when the real show begins. So the first half of it is just screening for hypnotizability and getting those people up there. And then right. you can do the more extreme right. things. But as you mentioned, I don't like it. It, it makes fools out of people. Um, it sometimes can be uh, damaging or upsetting. Um, my, my late father, who was a pioneer in hypnosis starting in the middle of the last century, had a woman, a, a neurologist called him up and said, Herbert, you are going to see this patient this morning because she was found wandering in the streets of Manhattan at 2.15 in the morning and she's in some kind of weird mental state and I don't know what it is, but see her and fix her, you know. And it turned out that the trick in the stage hypnosis show was that she was holding an imaginary bird cage and there was a little birdie in it and she was reacting just that way and it all was going great. And then he said, now imagine that we're opening the door and the bird will fly away. And she stood there and she started to shake. I mean, it sounds pretty innocent, right? And she said, the bird won't fly away. The bird won't fly away. And she got more and more anxious and panicked and it was clearly spoiling the show. So he just got her off the stage and she's wandering around, you know, midtown Manhattan at two o'clock in the morning. And it turned out that this apparently innocent suggestion to her was a reminder of who she was. She was a trophy wife of a very wealthy man and she felt like a bird in a gilded cage. Mm. And so when she decided, and people learn things about themselves when they engage in hypnotic experiences like this, she sort of visualized that and it was an important thing for her to know, but not under those circumstances. And the practitioner didn't exit her out of the hypnotic state. So she was in a persistent state of hypnosis wandering right. around. Right, wow. coupled with the upset, it's sort of crystallizing what she kind of knew about herself, but hadn't really faced. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my father was able to bring her out of the hypnotic state and discuss with her what it meant and how to get help for it. Now, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't want to present that as saying, this is what happens every time somebody else uses hypnosis. It's not dangerous. Hypnosis is just a state of highly focused attention. So things can go wrong in that state, but they can go wrong in a lot of other states too. But it's one reason that I'm not wild about stage hypnosis because these guys have no clinical responsibility at all right. if something happens. So I just, I think it does give hypnosis a bad name. I mean, people are intrigued by it, that's good, but it gives it a bad name as yeah. it should. It does have that veneer of, of being some kind of snake oil, carnival barker mm -hmm. type of situation. Your work is really about disabusing people of that notion and you know, not for nothing. I mean, your dad really was the pioneer of this mm -hmm. field. And I, I was looking into him a little bit. I know that he, treated Sybil and he was kind of the toast of the town and would dine at Elaine's. Like he seems right. like he was quite the guy. Yeah. 
He he was. He said he didn't go to Broadway theater because what happens in his office is more interesting, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, but most of the theater people came to Elaine's afterwards anyway. Mm-hmm. So we saw him there. Yeah, but interestingly, it, it seems like it's not a case in which you grew up, you know, thinking you were gonna pursue this craft as well, this science as well, well initially at least. It was interesting. I'll tell you a story. When I, I published a book some years ago, Living Beyond Limits, that had talked about treating cancer patients and some about hypnosis, Terry Gross was interviewing me on Fresh Air and mm-hmm. she said, you know, I happen to know that your father is a well-known hypnotist. Um, did he ever try to hypnotize you when you were a child? You know, suddenly she got journalistic on me and I said to her, Terry, I don't think so. <laughs> she said, okay, okay, we're, we're done with it. But well, you kind of dodged the question though. Yeah. <laughs> of um, Whether or not yeah. your dad was hypnotizing you. Oh, no, he wasn't. Yeah. He was, and you know, there, there are a couple of things, at least not that I remember. Right. Uh, but no, but I was very interested in the dinner table conversations. I mean, it was kind of fun to listen to this. And every once in a while, when he'd be film making a movie of a patient, he had a patient who had what we now called um, non-epileptic epilepsy, where you don't actually have a seizure focus in the brain, but you act like you're having a seizure. Mm. And... Um, she was just having these events at any time, anywhere. Her husband's desk at the factory near their home was moved to be near the door so he could run home and help her. So they filmed my father hypnotizing her and inducing one of these seizures. And you know, the, the, the story is maybe you can't stop it, but you can start it. And that's mm-hmm. the way of teaching you control over this mind-body relationship. So he had her do that and I'm watching her you know, like a, a fish flopping um, on the, on the sofa there. I'm thinking this is this is pretty interesting. So, I was I was attracted to it. Although of course I tried everything else first. But my parents, my mother is also a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst, um, and. Uh, my parents told me that I was free to be any kind of psychiatrist I wanted to be. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I took them up on it, right. here I am. You know? Right, and yeah, here you are. I mean, you you sort of ventured west, you started with a focus on philosophy, That's you right. ended up going to medical school, you ventured to San Francisco thinking it'll be a short-term thing and you've been at Stanford for quite some time That's at this right. point. Yeah. I just, and couldn't couldn't go back. I loved it. I loved it out here. Right. So so talk a little bit about you mentioned the mind body connection, and I think that's a really important point in broadening our understanding of this world of hypnosis. Well, you know, you mentioned snake oil earlier, and one of the things that really troubles me, saddens me about the way hypnosis has been understood and re- treated is, you know, there've been a lot of problems with medications too. You know, we have 60,000 opioid overdose deaths in the United States last year. Um, Medications have their problems too. And I'm a Mm -hmm. physician, I use medications, I'm not against that. But you know, we the major evolutionary advantage we have as humans is this big brain on the top of our bodies. It's connected to every organ in the body and but we, it doesn't come with a user's manual. And so we don't take full advantage of what it can do. And we underestimate, we tend to think that the real treatments in medicine are ingestion, injection, or incision. You know, that the body is like a broken car. You just replace the part and everything will be fine. And otherwise you're not really doing anything. You're just talking to the person. And I'll tell you, Rich, the day that I really 
that turned me around about this. I was a um, third year medical student at Harvard. I was in pediatric rotation. The nurse says to me, Spiegel, your next patient is in room 342 and I'm following the sound of the wheezing down the hall. And there's this 15-year-old girl, redhead, bolt upright, knuckles white, struggling for breath. You could hear the wheezing. Her mother's standing there crying. They had tried to use subcutaneous epinephrine twice. It didn't work. They were thinking about general anesthesia and starting her on steroids. And I didn't know what else to do. So I said, you want to learn a breathing exercise? And she nods. And uh, I had take, started a hypnosis course. And so... I got her hypnotized and then I realized we hadn't gotten to asthma in the course yet. Mm -hmm. So I came up with a very clever idea. I said, each breath you take will be a little deeper and a little easier. And within five minutes, she's lying back in bed. Her knuckles aren't white. Her mother's not crying and she's breathing almost normally. And the nurse ran out of the room. My intern comes to find me and I figure he's going to pat me on the back and say, good job, Spiegel. What'd you do? You know, he said, the nurse filed a complaint with the nursing supervisor that you violated Massachusetts law by hypnotizing a minor without parental consent. And, you know, Massachusetts has a lot of weird laws, but that's not on the list. And her mother was standing next to me when I did it. So he says to me, you're going to have to stop doing it. And so, I mean, this, just observing that, I think, you know, there is something here. There's something to this. The brain can really control what's going on in the body, even in rather extreme circumstances. So they told me that it was dangerous. And I said, you're going to put her on steroids and put her under general anesthesia and my talking to her is dangerous, you know? And he said, well, you may not be able to follow her. And I said, well, I'll, you know, I'm in Boston. I'll follow her as long as it's necessary. And he said, you got to stop doing it. I said, I'll tell you what, as long as she's my patient, I'm not going to tell her anything I know is not true. So if you want to take me off the case, go ahead. But otherwise I'm not. So there was a council of war among the, my intern, the resident, the chief resident, and the attending that weekend. And they came back on Monday with a radical idea, never been tried before. They said, let's ask the patient. And she said, I like this, you know. And, and that, just that observation, that just something I said to her, that using this simple, straightforward, undangerous technique could produce such a radical change in such a short time. Mm-hmm really hooked me. I mean, I, you know, I'd learned a lot, a fair amount about hypnosis growing up, but nothing like this where you see it happen. And, and that I think is one of the tremendous advantages right now is that you will know very quickly whether it's going to help you or not. It doesn't help everybody, but it helps a lot of people and you can feel it right away, mm. which is unusual among psychotherapies, even among medications it often takes a while to, to feel the effects. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that that breath is such a core critical kind of conduit to achieving these states. So talk a little bit about the impact of breath. I mean, breath is interesting. You're talking about voluntary and involuntary actions, you know, the distinction between the conscious mind and the unconscious mind. Breath is sort of unique in that we, you know, it we breathe no matter what we what you know what we do, our our right. body will take care of that, right. but we can kind of override that and yeah. control that as well. It's one of I don't know how many other kind of physiological, you know, biomechanical, you know, things that fall into that category. That's exactly right. It's a very astute observation. And I'm researching that now with my colleague and friend, Andrew Huberman. We've, we've got uh, some funding to study breath work and compare it to other forms of uh, mind-body control. And you're exactly right that the interesting thing, I mean, 
the centers for breath control are right at the, at the tip of the spinal cord, so between the brain and the spinal cord. So they're also right at the edge of conscious versus unconscious control. So as you said, we can consciously control our breathing, but we usually don't. Mm-hmm. And um, it seems to me to be a pathway into this mind-body connection just because it's at that tipping point between conscious and unconscious. And because also the way we breathe affects our autonomic nervous system. So if, if you think like your heart for a minute, when you inhale, you inhale by reducing pressure, expanding the diaphragm down, expanding the rib cage. And so you pull in because you create a bit of a vacuum air into your lungs. That also reduces blood flow to the heart because it's coming up through the vena cava into mm-hmm. the heart and it slows it down a bit. So the, the sinoatrial node says, wait a minute, there's less blood coming. We better speed up heart rate and, and blood pressure. So you get a bit of a pump of your sympathetic nervous system. And then when you exhale, you increase pressure, you increase return to the heart. And so the parasympathetic, the self-soothing system that opposes the sympathetic nervous system kicks in and, and slows down your heart rate and your blood pressure. We do this all mm-hmm. the time. It's called respiratory sinus arrhythmia. And it is a, actually a very good measure of health, the capacity to self-soothe. Can you turn on that parasympathetic system when you need it? And if you breathe in certain ways, one is called cyclic sighing, where if you do this, you inhale part way, hold it, fill your lungs, and then slowly exhale. What you're doing is privileging your parasympathetic over your sympathetic nervous system. And it's a a nice natural relaxation experience. And Andrew and I have found that it actually improves mood and makes people feel more rested when, when they do it. So we think there are ways of controlling your breathing that can enhance your capacity to Mm self-soothe. And what is it about breath that helps induce this hypnotic state? Well, It's not necessary, but typically when I do a hypnotic induction, I combine looking up and closing your eyes with taking a deep breath and slowly exhaling. And I think in part, it's triggering this self-soothing parasympathetic response because one of the things, you can get all aroused in hypnosis, but typically the arousal, even if it's mental arousal, doesn't necessarily bring with it physical arousal. Mm -hmm. And that's how hypnosis is a very good stress reduction technique because you can be facing something that makes you anxious, but you can still be having a physical experience of being comfortable. You can dissociate your mental from your physiological arousal. And so the breath is a way of helping to speed the transition into a state where whatever it is you're focusing on or concentrating on, your body can feel relaxed and comfortable. And that begins to teach you how to control stress. Mm. And what do we know and and perhaps uh, have yet to learn about what's going on neurochemically in the brain when you induce a hypnotic state? Like what aspects of the brain are being turned on, turned off, et cetera? We've been studying that for the past uh, decade. Mm-hmm. And um, we've discovered some things that, that really begin to make a lot of sense. Uh, and one of them is, I'll talk first about neural function in the brain and then neurochemistry. One of the things that happens when somebody goes into a hypnotic state is that they turn down activity in the dorsal anterior cingulate, the salience network. The way to think about the cingulate gyrus is it's a bundle of nerves that looks like a C on its end here. And it it goes under the cerebral cortex and over the limbic system. 
And this part here in the front, the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex, is part of the salience network. It's part of the brain that is a context detector and it tells you, should I pay attention or not? And so if a loud noise suddenly happens, you startle and you go turn your attention to where it is. Social media is very good at using this. You know, they, they'll float something by you that sounds a little scary or threatening and you suddenly you know, detach from what you were paying attention mm -hmm. to. That's the salience network. In hypnosis, you turn down activity in that brain region. And in fact, in another study, we looked at the prevalence of um, neurotransmitter activity in those regions and you see more GABA activity in the anterior cingulate of people who are very hypnotizable. So they have more ability to inhibit. It's an inhibitory neurotransmitter. It's one that is activated by anti-anxiety drugs. And there's greater ability there because of the higher prevalence of this inhibitory neurotransmitter to inhibit the salience activity. Mm -hmm. So it's one thing that helps you concentrate intently. You're, you're less likely to worry about what else you might be thinking of or are thinking about. The second thing that happens is higher what we call functional connectivity. That's if one region is active, the other region is active, that region is inactive, the other region tends to be inactive. Between the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex on the left, which is part of the executive control network, it's the part of my brain I'm hopefully using now as I'm describing this to you, and the insula, that's another part of the salience network that's a major mind-body pathway. So it helps your brain control what's happening in your body, control gastrointestinal function, control autonomic activity. And so you have a greater ability in hypnosis to control what's happening in your body like that 15-year-old girl with her asthma right. attack. Right. The third thing that happens is you have inverse functional connectivity. So when one region's active, the other is inactive between the executive control network and the posterior part of the cingulate cortex. That's what we have called the default mode network. And it's a part of the brain that's active when you're thinking about yourself, when you're reflecting on who you are and what it means. It's a part of the brains that where activity goes down in experienced meditators. And of course, part of meditation is to sort of detach from your selfness, you know, to just experience things and not judge them or see what they mean for you. And that's a mechanism of dissociation in hypnosis. Mm. So we found that a lot of things that we know from the phenomenology of hypnosis are actually happening in specific regions of the brain that should control that kind of activity. And is this the result of fMRI testing that right. you've been able to discern all of this? Yeah, we've screened yeah. hundreds and hundreds of thankfully cooperative Stanford students and picked out the ones who on formal testing are very high and very low in hypnotizability. We get put them in the scanner, the highs and the lows. We give them hypnotic instructions and we see what mm -hmm. happens in the brains only of the high hypnotizables and only when they're in the hypnotic conditions. And that's what enabled us to observe um, what's going on in the right. brain. And on that subject of hypnotizability, let's talk a little bit more about that. I mean, first, how do you determine whether somebody has a high receptivity to it? And secondarily to that, like, is that a preset that people come into the world with? Is it malleable? Is it something that can be shifted with technique? Um, we're doing some research now that adds to another body of research over the last decade or so showing that there does seem to be a genetic component to hypnotizability, that particularly people with a certain polymorphism of the production of dopamine, a neurotransmitter that's prominent in the prefrontal cortex and throughout the brain, 
if they produce just enough, so this is an enzyme, catechol-O-methyltransferase, it's an enzyme uh, that metabolizes dopamine. And if, you, if you're at a point where you don't metabolize it too quickly or too slowly, those people seem to be more highly hypnotizable. And related people, people with in general genetic commonalities tend to be more similarly hypnotizable than people who are unrelated. And so there is some evidence that it may have to do with this genetic variation in Mm -hmm. neurotransmitter metabolism. But there's also evidence, um, Josephine Hilgard published a book called Personality Hypnosis where she looked at the early life histories of former Stanford students, of Stanford students and found that higher hypnotizability was associated with one positive and one negative thing. Imaginative involvements, children who had been raised to have imaginative involvements, their parents read stories to them every night, they played games in their imagination, Mm. turn out to be more highly hypnotizable. But sadly, also children who have been physically and sexually abused are more highly hypnotizable. And it may be that it's a kind of protective defense mechanism if you're going through terrible experience. So right, we, because they developed the ability to disassociate when their brain was still malleable. That's exactly right. I had one patient who said, I just go to a mountain meadow full of wildflowers when my father and his friends were abusing me. You know, that's the mm-hmm. way she dealt with it. And so there's a developmental part of it, but the other part of the story is that most children are highly hypnotizable. Right, that's what I was thinking yeah. because they're less calcified in their neuropathways. That's, that's part of it. And because they're, for children, you know, knowledge and emotion and experience are all kind of one thing. You know, it's why work is play for kids. You know, it's a shame that we make them into little adults because they love doing whatever it is they're doing. They just get fully engaged hypnotically in a way mm. in whatever they're doing. And you call your eight-year-old in for dinner and she doesn't hear you, she's out doing whatever she does. In adolescence, when we develop what the psychologist Piaget used to call formal operations, where you kind of privilege logic over experience, many people lose to some degree that hypnotizability. And by the time you're 20, 21, the level you have is what you're gonna have 25 years later. And they did a study at Stanford in which they blindly retested students and at 25 years after they'd taken their psych one class, and found that there was a 0.7 correlation between their original hypnotizability and the one they mm. had at age 45 or 46. Is that Zimbardo? Yeah, that did that. Yeah, yep. I took side yes, one you, from you him. Took, did I was you not, really? I was not part of that cohort. You weren't part of that cohort. Did no. he? Did he read the? His, I mean, it was you know 30 years scale. ago. I don't yeah, remember. Yeah. You know. Yes, that's right. You were there in the 80s. Yeah. You were uh, at Stanford. Well, you know, so what it suggests is that once you get into early adulthood, it's a very stable. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just doesn't change very much. And, and so some people who retain it, I think have brains that have grown into uh, a, a relationship, particularly between, and we've done some neuroimaging on this too, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and the anterior cingulate. And people, the students we studied who were more highly hypnotizable had more functional connectivity between the executive control and the salience networks than the low hypnotizables. Mm-hmm. So when they thought about something, they tended to coordinate that with the part of the brain that says, is this worth thinking about or not? Whereas, and it's interesting, if you see really low hypnotizable people as adults, and I see a lot of them, they come to me, they wanna be hypnotized and they're not hypnotizable. Um, they're very critical and, and, and they evaluate things carefully and they argue and they raise questions, yeah. which is all good, 
but it's a kind of non-hypnotic way of responding. Right, it's, it's sort of an external, external evidence of non-hypnotizability through character traits, right? Just being kind well of skeptical and defensive perhaps a little bit. That's, yeah. that's exactly right. But you've, you've developed this test, the Spiegel test, yeah, right? To right. kind of easily in a facile way determine uh, hypnotizability. Are, can, will you indulge me in taking me through this? Sure, I'd be glad to. Well, the first part, um, my father observed, he used to have people look up at the ceiling, look at a light on the ceiling and close their eyes. And actually he noticed that the woman I mentioned earlier who was extremely hypnotizable and having these seizures, these pseudo seizures, that when she looked up, he noticed that all he could see was the sclera, the whites of her eyes. He couldn't see her, her iris or her pupil at all. Mm -hmm. And his next patient the following Monday was a very rigid, obsessional lawyer who just you know, fought him every bit of the way. He had him look up and the guy had to bring his eyes back down and he was not at all hypnotizable. So uh, my father started measuring it and there seemed to be a, a modest but real correlation between this measurement that he called the eye roll and and the rest of the test, which only takes about five minutes, but measures hypnotic experience and behavior. Mm -hmm. So I do the whole test with every patient that I see um, to determine how hypnotizable they are. So I can I can see for a start if you want. Sure. See what you're. Do I take my glasses off, or I can leave um, them on? Oh, you can leave them on. All right. So look up all the way up past your eyebrows. Keep looking up and slowly close your eyes. Close. So you would be open. You would be about a two. Uh, out of four, I can see about half iris and mm. half sclera, and but there's a bit of a convergence that usually adds a point. Your your left eye tends to to converge to the middle when you yeah I have a weak that. left yeah. eye yeah I, I could see that yeah but, um, so you you'd be a two or three so you'd be in the sort of middle to high but not extremely high range would be my guess just from that now there's the rest of the test I can do it if you want to see. Uh, formally how hypnotizable you are. Right, interesting. What is it about the, the optic nerve? I mean, obviously the optic nerve is part of the brain, but you know, that test on a surface level feels very, uh, you know, kind of correlative, but not necessarily, you know, causative. Right. Right, so how, you know, what, what is that relationship between, sight seems to be very important. Well, sight is important. And I think, you know, part of why I ask people to look up and close their eyes is I want them to be alert and awake, but turning inward. We're used to going to sleep when we close our eyes. So the idea that you can be reflective and intensely concentrating, but your eyes are closed, means that you're cutting off your scanning awareness. You know, as uh, we're pretty pathetic creatures uh, in, in, the, in the animal world. And one way that we keep ourselves alive is by scanning the visual environment to see if there are any threats. And uh, with hypnosis, you're kind of trusting the outside world to leave you alone mm -hmm. and turning inward. So part of it is that, just closing your eye, looking up, closing your eyes. And there's an old Zen practice called looking at the third eye, where it's part yeah. of meditation and you look up and close your eyes. But there are other things about the neurophysiology of eye movement. Um, the third, fourth, and sixth cranial nerve nuclei that control eye movement and control the lowering of the eyelid and that are involved in the, the exercise that I did with you just now are also surrounded by the reticular activating system, which is a part of the brain stem and the lower part of the brain that modulates arousal. And drugs that affect 
um, level of arousal also affect eye movement. So if you take barbiturates, you get nystagmus, your eyes move back and forth like this. They control the size of the pupil, so stimulates, enhance the size of the pupil, opioids constrict the pupil. Um, and so there's a lot about arousal that is very closely linked to eye movement. And that I think is one reason that these two may be connected. Mm. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation. A groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. With respect to the other senses though, and, and thinking about hypnosis in terms of absorption and suggestibility, I can't help but think about sense memory and how powerful things like smell or hearing a song that you haven't heard for a very long time that can evoke a very specific vivid memory. Like how do those other senses play into this kind of modality? Um, well, I, what they show is that they can, you know, what we're doing with this eye movement test is just seeing what it tells us about your ability to manipulate these other things. But we have plenty of evidence that hypnosis can be used to alter perception, somatosensory perception, visual perception, mm -hmm. auditory perception. And um, we did one study where we um, showed a group of highly hypnotizable people uh, a color grid, like a Mondrian painting and had them in hypnosis drain the color out of the color grid. And after a while they said, yeah, it looks black, white, and gray to me. Mm. And then we showed them some black, white, and gray grids and said, make them colorful. And they did that. And they could convincingly to themselves see it differently. And what we found using PET was that there was, when they were draining the color, they turned down activity in the lingual and fusiform gyri in the occipital cortex that process color vision. And when they were adding color to the black and white grid, they increased activity in those same regions. So they could change it in both wow. directions. And I call that my believing a seeing experiment, you know, that with hypnosis, you can get highly hypnotizable people to literally change their perception of color. Right. And it's not just the reporting, it looks different. They see it differently. Yeah. And we've seen the same thing using EEG on, on pain perception and others uh, at the University of Montreal, there's a very good research group, Pierre Rainville, that has taught people to uh, use hypnosis to reduce pain. So you administer some shocks and you say your hand is in ice water 
and hypnosis, and they turn down activity in the somatosensory cortex where you process ultimately sensation. Um, and if you use different words in hypnosis, you say, well, the pain's there, but it won't bother you, which is sort of what people on opioids feel. You turn down activity in the anterior cingulate cortex and you still get analgesia. So you can use hypnosis to change not just how the brain reacts to things, but how the brain processes things. You experience them differently. It's utterly fascinating. And of course, the, the dark side of my personality can't help but think about the Manchurian candidate, <laughs> you know, example of how this could be, you know, weaponized for nefarious means. You know, I, I you know, the the sort of what you're what you're taught in, you know, grade one hypnosis training is oh no, people would never do anything that they otherwise wouldn't do. I would like to think that, but look. You know, we live in a country where a substantial minority of the population actually thinks that Trump won the presidential election, you know. Um, so uh, it is entirely possible for us human beings to succumb to social influence and believe things that are just flat out not true. Mm -hmm. um, that's a little scary. It goes beyond hypnosis, but if, you know, it does suggest that. It's a mass hypnosis of yeah, sorts. I think I yeah. think so. I think it was. I pay attention to something else. It's like a giant, you know, big stage, stage hypnosis, you know, and you look at what happens in those rallies and what people will go for, you know, when somebody tells them this is the right thing to do and this is what must happen and all this. It's a little scary, but uh, <laughs> it's not hypnosis fault. <laughs> you yeah. know, leave yeah. my specialty out of this. But I, I do think... Um, so is there a Manchurian candidate thing possible? Sure, do. Um, I don't think it happens very often and I do think people are capable of resisting even in a hypnotic circumstance, um, doing something that they feel deeply is wrong. Uh, but on the other hand, we all get, you know, we've all had that, it seemed like a good idea at the time experience, you know, and you wonder what the hell was I thinking when right. I did that? And so I think anything that has the power to help has the power to hurt. In a clinical hypnosis setting, is there a sense of how long you can create a persistent hypnotic state? Does it wear off with time or can somebody kind of remain in that state indefinitely? Well, <laughs> I know a few people who <laughs> may have, but I, um, let me put it this way. Um, I, I, have to, I can answer that question in two ways. Typically in, in the sort of formal sense, if I hypnotize somebody in my office, they were very hypnotizable, they're in a trance and I get called away and forget to come back or something. Usually the worst thing that'll happen is they'll fall, eventually fall asleep and when they wake up, they'll be out mm -hmm. of the state. Some people can begin to wonder what's going on and bring themselves out. But the other side of that coin is, look, what I do to put someone into a hypnotic state if they're hypnotizable is pretty straightforward, very fast, easy to do. And so that means that people who have that ability go into the states like that all the time anyway, and they come out of them. So uh, there's a, a great psychologist at uh, University of Minnesota called Aki Telligan who developed an absorption scale. It's a measure of how often you get caught up in sunsets or movies, you forget to come home for dinner, you just get totally engaged and absorbed. And those people, when they're tested formally, are more hypnotizable than those who don't have these high absorption scores. So what it suggests is, you know what? It's happening all the time anyway. People who are hypnotizable are going into hypnotic-like states, getting absorbed and engaged, and then coming out of them again. Mm -hmm. 
we we associate hypnosis with pinwheels and you know watches swaying yeah. back and forth and all the like. I feel like hypnosis needs clinical hypnosis needs a bit of a rebranding to bring it into the <laughs> 21st century. Like if you called it something else like the neuroabsorption protocol or something like that, I feel like it would have attraction that uh, it 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 kind of is in need of. You know, I, you're really good at this, Rich. And if you have some good advice, yeah. um. <laughs> I'm Hire a marketing it. agency yeah. for this. <laughs> like but, beating the dead horse of this term well, hypnosis. Well, here's the know. thing though. I, I, I mean, I'm the term I'm playing around with in my head is transformation, but with a C, not with an mm-hmm. S. I like that. That it's a it's a way of of making transforming yourself, making changes in a hurry, and using the state. And uh, on the other hand, there's a sort of a impish part of me that is saying, you know, maybe we ought to just say, folks, hypnosis, dangerously effective, you know, that uh, if people are a little, you know, a little bit scared of it, they might actually pay more attention to it. So, and I've tried using other terms, but you know, when I do it, everybody says, oh, come on, you're talking about hypnosis, give me a break, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I hear what you're saying and I, I think we have a problem, but I don't know whether we, make the problem better by trying to call it something else or by acknowledging what it is, but expanding upon what it is. Yeah, interesting. Transformation, I like that. You like it? Well, let's talk about use cases. Uh, You mentioned pain management, um, opioid addiction. There are, you know, I I think most people associate hypnosis or at least the efficacy of it with smoking cessation. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we're in Los Angeles, there's lots of kind of quote unquote, like celebrity hypnotists, people pay an unbelievable amount of money to go see these people to quit smoking. I don't know whether those people fall into the category of, of being legitimate clinical hypnotists, but there are, you know, there's a wide spectrum of use cases here. So Mm -hmm. let's talk about that for a few minutes. Sure, I'd be glad to. Well. Certainly, uh, I, I can save some of these wealthy people in LA a lot of money by saying, you know, we, we do this on Reverie, our hypnosis app. Mm-hmm. And there we did choose a different name, by the way. We didn't call it a hypnosis app, but it's, you know, R-E-V-E-R-I. And we have interactive digital hypnosis there where we treat pain, we treat stress, we help people focus their attention more, we help them control trouble sleeping, insomnia, trouble eating, um, and uh, smoking control. We help people stop smoking. We get one out of five people just using the app, stop smoking. Now mm. it's not everybody, but that's- that 20% com- is pretty good. It compares favorably with a lot of other things. I, I had one, we're doing a, a number of studies on this now, and I had one uh, woman came in, we do a careful evaluation in the study, and she sort of at first didn't like it when we taught it to her, but she went home and she did the exercise and she said, cigarette, phew, who wants that? And she said, I haven't smoked a cigarette since. And she said, this is some crazy ass voodoo shit. And I mean that in a good way, she mm-hmm. said, you know. That's amazing. And she, she said her friends are amazed that she stopped and she's helping her friends stop. So it can be a place where you turn a corner where you can just, because you concentrate intently, you're cognitively flexible, you're dissociating from your usual pattern of associations that lead you to have another cigarette, that you can focus on respecting and protecting your body rather than fighting smoking. One of, one of the strategies that hypnotists are pretty good at is saying to patients, the worst thing I could do is tell you don't think about purple elephants. You know, right. What are you right, thinking right, about? Right. So if you tell yourself don't smoke, what do you want to do? You want to smoke. But if I tell you to think about your body as if it were a trusting innocent child that had to take into it anything you put into it, even if it were damaged by it, um, 
that's a whole different way of thinking about it. And you can feel good about yourself right away. You're not depriving yourself. You're protecting and respecting your body. And that's something you can be for. And that's something you've written about and talked about a lot that mm-hmm. you, you know, came to a turning point about how you were treating your body and how your body was treating you and everything changed when you did that. Yeah, the, the solution's a little bit different though, but I, yes, I think what's interesting right. about addiction and perhaps this is related to pain management is there is a physiological thing occurring in your body that's creating discomfort, right? right. Whether it's the, the, the chemical craving for the substance or the, the you know, neural impulse that's creating the pain that somehow is being overridden by this hypnotic practice. Well, you know, part of it is that for pain, for example, our brains are used to treating all pain as if it were acute pain. You know, if you've just broken your ankle, you better know about it and do something about it. But after a while, you know, even as it's healed and um, moving it doesn't necessarily do any damage, your brain tends to react in the same way. It learns that something really bad happened to your ankle and you better do something about it. Um, And so it's partly learning, teaching your brain how to reinterpret the peripheral input so that you're, it's not, you know, it becomes like the, the, you know, the, the, the loudest kid in the classroom, you know, you just pay more attention to him even though you don't want to. Mm-hmm. I saw a, a lovely woman yesterday I hadn't met before um, who had a terrible car accident like 30 years ago, has had 10 surgeries on her legs as a result, has back pain um, and is just frustrated beyond words and has, is on a bunch of, um, uh, you know, oxycodone and other um, uh, opioid treatments. Want, they're telling her get off them because you're going to get addicted, which happens. And she herself was a clinical hypnotist, and she said, "I help a lot of other people, but I can't seem to help myself." And I, she was moderately hypnotizable. Um, when we started, her pain was six out of ten, which she said I can sort of tolerate, but if it gets to seven or eight, I can't. And she has a bath. Her insurance company gave her a walk-in bath because she has to get around with a walker now. And I said, you're in your bath, you're warm, tingling, numb, feel your body floating. And um, and I said, there's one other thing I want you to think about. I'm suspecting that you're pretty angry at your body. And she said, you bet I am. And I said, well, you know, she had actually two new grandchildren. And I said, if your little granddaughter were in pain and were crying, what would you do? Would you get angry at her? Mm. She said, hell no, I'd you know, hug her and comfort her and soothe her until she felt better. And I said, good, that's what you're gonna do for your body. And so I want you to imagine comforting your body the way you comfort your great granddaughter. And within a few minutes, like 10 minutes, the pain was down to two. And she said, I can live with that. Wow. And, and she, you know, <laughs> she was sort of surprised, but she wasn't. I mean, she does hypnosis for a living, but she couldn't do it for herself. Right, right, right. And, but part of it is also the strategy. It's not just, you know, can you change it, but how do you approach the problem? And again, I want it to be what you're for, not what you're against. So she was, she was able to do it and, and felt, you know, much better than she had a few minutes earlier. And it seems like a big piece in that strategy is this idea of self-love and self-respect. That's right. Yeah. That's right. You know, you know I, I had a cancer patient who said, you know, I used to treat my body like it was my dog, you know, sit here, go over there, do this, do that, you know. And when I got cancer, I realized it wasn't listening to me anymore. And one, you know, you, you feel frustrated, anxious, but, you know, we'd rather mostly be mad than sad. We'd rather, you know, be angry at something that should be better or different then then realistically assess what's going on. Mm-hmm. And part of what we don't fully 
live as if we understood is that we are in full charge of our bodies and they'll do things, they'll, the body can make you feel bad, but you can make the body feel bad. And if you can learn to treat it with respect the way you would any other creature that depended upon you, you'll live better within your body and your body will help you live better too. And does that strategy hold true for other use cases? Like you mentioned the asthma story mm-hmm. or uh, you know sleep disorders, what about you know, obsessive thoughts, OCD, trauma? Um, With trauma, for sure. That's in part because people are in dissociative states when they're traumatized. And when you get things like post-traumatic stress disorder, and this is not a sort of one-shot cure situation, but one that I use in, in treatment, is you get people to think about their traumatic experience from a different point of view. We know that most of the treatments for PTSD involve what's called exposure-based therapy or cognitive restructuring about the trauma or some combination of the two, but you have to reapproach the trauma. And given that flashbacks are a symptom of PTSD, I've often wondered, why, don't, why doesn't it cure itself? You know, mm-hmm. okay, you're getting the exposure, why aren't you feeling better? Because you're not in control. You're feeling reattacked by the memory or the flashback the way you were when the trauma happened. And so what you need to do is approach it in a way that helps you take control of what you can control and give up the fantasy of control where you can't. Most people would rather feel guilty than helpless. They'd rather blame themselves with the fantasy that somehow I could have prevented it from happening, it might not have happened again. And if you can get them to face it, but see it from a different point of view while they control their physical reaction, they don't feel reassaulted by the memory because they're bringing it on. So I had a a woman come to see me to use hypnosis because she'd been, it was an attempted rape. She was getting dark. She was coming home from the store. This guy jumped her and wanted to drag her up into her apartment. And she couldn't really see his face and she was hoping the hypnosis would help revivify her image of the face. And occasionally that can happen, but she said, I still can't see much. But she said, you know what I do see? And I said, your body is safe and comfortable. You know, you may be remembering this, but your body is protected. You're not gonna be harmed now. And she said, you know what? He didn't just want to rape me. He wanted to kill me if he got me up to my apartment. And he, she fought with him so hard, he gave her a basilar skull fracture. She actually had a seizure mm-hmm. and was taken to the hospital afterwards. And I said, all right, now your body is safe. I want you to picture on the other side of the screen uh, what you did to protect yourself. Uh, everybody who's in a situation like that comes up with some strategy. Maybe freeze, don't say anything, don't antagonize them. It may be fighting, but they do something. But they often don't appreciate what they did. And she said, you know what? He's surprised that I'm fighting so hard. He didn't think I would. Mm. So she came away from that experience with a completely different view of what had happened. That Not that she got herself hurt and shouldn't have, but that she probably saved her own life. Right. And that's the kind of thing you can do with hypnosis. You can hold those two thoughts in your mind, look at what happened and see it from a new point of view. But the key piece being here is, is volition, right? If you're gonna revisit trauma, PTSD, you know, without your volition, you're being visited by these traumatic events that are right. kind of enhancing the traumatic experience versus getting into a state where you can welcome some aspect of that experience in a, in a safe environment so that you can work through it. Yes, that's well put. And that's, uh, but you know, people worry hypnosis means losing control. It doesn't, it means enhancing control of your brain and of your experience. So part of what gives truth to what they're experiencing is they're feeling in control when they're doing it. 
And they're saying, you know, I know what I could control. I, can, I have to face what I couldn't control. And part of what is so damaging about trauma, why people have post-traumatic stress disorder, why one out of four combat veterans comes back with PTSD is that you feel trauma is the experience of being made into an object, a thing, the victim of nature's indifference, somebody else's rage. And so that means you're stuck in one view of who you are. And the minute you think about it, you feel like you are once again an object with no control. And with hypnosis and in psychotherapy, you're parsing that experience to say, yes, there were aspects you did not control, but there were aspects you did, and here's what you did. Right. I know you talked about this with Andrew, but I think it brings up an interesting discussion in a broader context around how we think about our own exposure to things that perhaps could traumatize us. You know, we're in a culture of trigger warnings and safe spaces and oh, things yeah. like that. I just saw, it wasn't a Spiegel eye roll, but it was a bit of an eye roll. Um, you know, and, and, and as a psychiatrist, understanding that we have to kind of uh, inure ourselves to exposure on some level as a means of strengthening our resilience, our emotional resilience to things that might disturb us. I, I completely agree with you. And I, I just think this whole trigger warning thing is, is misguided. Um, that is, you have to, you know, life is full of tragedy and misery, you know, as we know all too well, if you just, you know, gaze at a newspaper, or listen to the news every once in a while, people are suffering, you know, lethal assaults on their countries, all kinds of horrible things are happening. A million Americans died of COVID in the last couple of years. I mean, there are terrible things happening and you can't just have live in this happy fantasy that things aren't happening. It's a matter of how you face it. And if you think about the fact that what we've just discussed, that the main treatment for PTSD, so these are people who have been traumatized, who are very symptomatic, is not to have them avoid it and run away from it and get a trigger warning, don't think about this. It's to have them face it in a controlled, supportive, thoughtful way. Mm -hmm. And frankly, that's the only way we humans are gonna survive. We have to face our own vulnerabilities. And you know, the term trigger warning is an unfortunate one because you know, triggers are causing a lot of the trauma uh, that we're facing now. By the time an American child has grown up, they've seen 20,000 people killed, mostly with guns on television. And uh, yet they're desensitized to it because almost all of those situations are ones in which you don't care about the person who's killed. You know, the cops got the bad guy kind mm -hmm. of thing. So we desensitize people to real tragic, horrifying trauma. And you know, there's a big debate now about should we show these poor children who have been killed, show what's left of their bodies after one of these exploding bullets hits them. And uh, I think we're sanitizing it too much. Uh, you know, it's painful to see it, but we damn well ought to know what's happening to people. And the fact that there are 400 million firearms in this country and 330 million people, um, and that it's a leading cause of death among young people now is gun deaths. We've got to face that. We yeah. got to do something about it. Yeah, perhaps it's a, a different form of, of psyop or mass hypnosis. The yeah. extent to which we we've been, you know, kind of inoculated against the horrors of of that type of activity. You're exactly right. We're sanitizing it, and we shouldn't. You know, yeah. at least face it. See what you're doing. Let's talk about amnesia. I think there's an interesting discussion to be had around memory and, and hypnosis. People that, you know, perhaps they've, they've gone through some sort of traumatic experience, they can't remember it, and hypnosis being a vehicle for recapturing lost memory. Yes, 
it's um, that's the dissociative part of hypnosis, where you can sort of disconnect your memory of a certain experience, particularly and often because it arouses very strong emotion that you have trouble, understandably, dealing with. And so one form of emotion regulation is to just keep the content out of consciousness, so that you don't get so upset when you when you remember it. And, you know, to some extent, we all have dissociation or loss of memory of things. You know, you, you may have had the experience of going back, you go back to Stanford and you look around the buildings you were in and you may start remembering things that you hadn't thought of. Sure. You know, why do we do that? Why do we go back for reunions, you know, to, to see free people, but also to stir up memories we had. So that isn't formal dissociative amnesia, but it is the case that the sort of lack of cues that would link you to a given memory may make the memory harder to recover. On the other hand, there are situations where people literally lose recollection for hours or days. People who were in the World Trade Center attack, many of them couldn't recall events that happened and it was probably a good thing because at the time, they also narrowed the focus of attention. I treated one woman who was getting out of the the second tower that fell and she's telling herself, I just want to put one foot in front of the other and if I get to the ground floor, I'll be okay. And when she did, the other building collapsed and she was blown through a, a window, but managed to survive. Wow. And she was angry at herself. She said, I lied to myself. I wasn't really safe. Well, of course she wasn't really safe, but the best thing she could do, her survival technique was to just focus on what she could do. And that's one step in front of the other going down the stairs. And so we do that. So the experience was encoded in this in this way. There, there's been research, for example, uh, about people who are the victims of shootings or armed robberies. And the cops asked them, what did the guy, they give a brilliant description of the gun. You know, it was a black revolver and it was, you know, eight inches long, whatever it was. And they said, what did the guy look like? They said, I don't know. Mm. <laughs> because they're in a mm. hypnotic-like state. They're so focused on what's likely to kill them that that's all they're paying attention to. So some of the amnesia is you really didn't acquire much information at that right, point. Right, it just didn't imprint right. at the get-go. But in other cases, there was, you may remember down, not far from here, Chowchilla, California, there was a school bus kidnapping. They, these guys overtook a school bus, buried the whole bus with the kids in it in some trench somewhere. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Two days. Mm -hmm. And they, so they found, they, they managed to dig their way out and fortunately the kids were okay uh, physically. Um, the bus driver couldn't remember much about the guys, the car that overtook the bus. He was hypnotized and they asked him to look at the front of the car that was overtaking the bus and say what he could remember about the license plate. And only under hypnosis, he recalled all of the correct numbers and letters of the license plate in the wrong order. Wow. But that was enough. And that led the police to find and arrest the guys and they're rotting in jail somewhere uh, for having done it. So there are times when you know, the intensity of the experience will tend to compartmentalize your memories, make it harder to access them, but not impossible. And hypnosis, particularly done in a way that reassures people about their current comfort and safety can sometimes help with that. Yeah, there's some debate it seems as to the efficacy of, of using hypnosis in a court context, right? You can see, oh, yeah. you can foresee many situations in which this would be powerful for either the prosecution or the, the defense to induce a witness into a hypnotic state to remember these things or to have them testify as to what occurred during a hypnotic state and introduce that in court. Is that a state by state thing or what is the court system? 
Yeah, uh, mo in, in most states now, California has a decision called People versus Shirley where it was a situation, it was the worst possible use of hypnosis. This was some guy brought a woman home. Um, they were starting to flirt with one another. He goes out and gets some, and they had, they had sex with one another. He goes out to get some more beer. Uh, when he comes back, she decides that she's been raped. I mean, it was not a good, you know, story for a rape mm -hmm. conviction. The night before she was to go on the stand, the assistant district attorney hypnotized her and her story got better. That's a textbook case of how not to use it, yeah. using it to just suggest to people things, not to help them recover things. And so that's a precedent that's to a precedent. prevent this from People being, versus Shirley. Right. So California now, the law is that if a witness or victim has been hypnotized, they may not testify. Now, I frankly think that's too draconian because you know, if somebody threatens to kill your family, if you testify, that will influence what you say, but those people can testify. Mm -hmm. If somebody's a known liar, has lied 15 times, like certain prominent politicians we know, they can testify. But someone's been, you know, somebody's dangled a, a watch in front of them, they can't. I've testified in a couple of appeals cases in Texas uh, in which witnesses of accessories to murder or, or of you know somebody outside a house just before somebody was murdered, you know she was across the street looking in, were hypnotized. And what I found in cases like that is they don't change their story very much and they don't change their conviction all that much. And the facts tend to support them. And I said, look, mm. you know, it could have contaminated the witness, but I don't think it did. And um, in most of those cases, we've sustained the convictions. So it's a difficult area, but, and where, where it's problematic, Rich, is that sometimes police get lazy. They say, well, we don't need to do the dirty work of you know, getting you know, concrete evidence. We'll just get somebody hypnotized and that'll take care of it. And that's not good. Right, and I, I suppose the fear would also be that if you had a witness who is highly hypnotizable and you had a clinical hypnotist with an agenda trying to drive a certain result that that person could push that witness in a certain direction to derive a result. That's absolutely right. And, and the California legislature passed a law that said there were circumstances under which a hypnotized victim or witness may testify. And that's if it's done by an independent licensed professional. So it's not a member of the police or the district attorney's office. Mm -hmm. uh, if you video record everything that's happened, including knowing what the hypnotist knew before they um, they conducted the interrogation that those people may testify if it's done properly. Interesting. Um, I wanna talk about perhaps my favorite use case, which is high performance states. I know that you worked at some point with the Stanford women's swimming team. So yes. I wanna hear a little bit about yeah. that and have a discussion sure. around kind of enhancing our ability to perform under duress. Yes, sure. And I know you're, you're, you're good at that stuff. So you can <laughs> tell me what your perspective on it is. Uh, Richard Quick, who is the coach of the Stanford women's swimming team, which is a very good team. Yeah, has been and he's one of the all-time greats. Yeah. Richard, he, he called passed me, away, but yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he, uh, he called me up and he said, look, I got a problem. Um, my swimmers are swimming better in practice than they are in meets. Their times are better. And that tells me that there's some kind of competitive anxiety that's interfering with their performance. So what I did was I got together with them and I had them go into a state of hypnosis and imagine swimming your best race. You know, just doing, and you're a swimmer, so mm -hmm. you, you know what that's like. But the interesting thing about swimming, unlike other sports is, it's not a contact sport. 
in a sense, it doesn't really matter what the person in the next lane is doing. What matters is what you're doing. And they got distracted by it. They were not, so they got out of touch with their body. They got out of touch with how they could, in fact, enact their best strategy to perform at their best. And from what I heard, they were, they were doing better, that it helped them refocus on their relationship with their body and their swimming plan not on whatever the girl on the next lane was doing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So did you do that? Like you performed uh, hypnosis in a group setting I for did. them? Yeah, I did. And how many times did you do that? Uh, I don't remember. I think two or three, not a whole lot, but they. I taught them to do it for themselves. Right, so yeah, and we're gonna get into self-hypnosis in a bit, but just sure. to kind of stay on this for a little bit, I'm interested in the difference between doing this through the modality of hypnosis versus what we would consider to be visualization. Like I, I kind of learned a version of this in high school as a swimmer, like you lay down, you know, and for 10 or 15 minutes, you just visualize every piece of the race going, you know, in, in the minutest detail, slowing down time so that you can anticipate everything. So how is that different qualitatively from uh, inducing a hypnotic state to do the same thing? essentially. To be honest with you, I don't think it's all that different. Um, I think if you're hypnotizable, that kind of relaxed visualization is a kind Mm -hmm. of hypnotic experience. Because what you're doing is first of all, dissociating your imagery about a very vigorous physical activity from your current physical state. So you're, you're dissociating the content from the physical experience of it. And you're picturing, and I, I like the sort of time distortion and other things you did to kind of allow yourself to, to micromanage what you would be doing. And um, so to be honest with you, I don't think there's a whole lot of difference between that kind of relaxed imagery that you were doing and hypnosis if you're hypnotizable. Mm-hmm. And what is the relationship between what you just described and what would be considered like a quote unquote flow state, like talk about marketing. They, you know, who, I don't know who came up Actually, with the, the term flow state, but- Chick, chick sent me high. Yeah, it's uh, a, that's a genius because people love that. Right. It's right. not a new idea, but no. it's been kind of encapsulated in a notion that's very modern and appealing. Yeah, he did. And, you know, I read the book. I like, I've heard him talk. I, I like what he says. Um, he has, there are a couple of things that are a little different. He calls the flow state autotelic, that is you, you just being in it is enough to make you feel good. So it's not just what you do with it, but just being there. And there's a sense in which that's a component of mindfulness too, mm-hmm. that you just you know get to a point where you allow yourself to experience things non-judgmentally and you just feel good because you're doing it, not because you're doing anything in particular with it. And he, he, he talks about absorption so that you're totally engaged in what you're doing. You're not worried about consequences or outcomes. You're just in the experience, which shares something with meditation too. And, but it is true that in hypnosis, particularly if you're moderately to highly hypnotizable, you do have this sense of just going along with things and enjoying the ride. You know, you're just letting it happen, but you're in control of what's happening. I mean, that's where people worry about loss of control, but you're really enjoying it and controlling it we tend to use hypnosis more to sort of problem solve. Mm. And flow is meant to be about, you know, getting engaged in work or pleasurable activities. Experiential. Experiential. Um, So they're, they're related, but they're not exactly the same thing. In my experience as an endurance athlete, 
when I was, you know, really training hard for some of these crazy long races, there would be days where I would literally be out all day. Like I'd be on my bike for eight or nine hours. And the fitter that I got, my relationship with time would change. Like I would build up to a place where that type of activity didn't seem to be that daunting and didn't seem like it took all day. Like there was this relationship with time that was very different. And I don't know whether it's because of the manner in which breath works in an elevated kind of aerobic heart rate zone of activity, but my experience was that of a hypnotic state, like you could call it a flow state, but to me, it did feel more hypnotic because of that time piece there. And I'm interested as to whether you've thought a a little bit about or whether you've done any work around like endurance activity or physical activity in general and the extent to which that alters your brain state and whether or not that could be considered hypnotic. Oh, I absolutely think it could be considered hypnotic, but I'm interested in your language. You're very accomplished at these extreme athletic performances, but you're still, I hear you sort of describing it as though it were, I finally got my body to the point where it let me do this, where it let me be able to compress time and see it in another way. And I would, I'm a psychiatrist. This I would is the clinical psychiatrist coming out. Coming yeah, out. No, Here I it love is. it. This is it's, great. It's free, no, no choice. Please continue. Um, that your brain got to the point where it allowed your body to do what it was doing. Interesting, And, and yes. you were focusing more on, you got to the point, and this is where your body let you do it, but you got to the point where even though your body was performing at very high and unusual levels, you were able to experience the sort of accomplishment and pleasure of your body in this new kind of motion rather than your body got to the point where you could enjoy it. Right, the relationship with the discomfort changed and that, that, that state changed in the brain, that's, not in the body. Yes, yeah, that's, yeah. that's what I would say. But what do you think about that? I'd be interested in your- I mean, I think that's, that's super interesting. Of course, there's the physical capacity to do the work, Sure. but it's your relationship with that work. Are you dreading it? Are you enjoying it? Right. Are you in a, in a kind of relaxed state while you're doing it? That's all signaling that's occurring, you know, between the two ears, right? Right, exactly. And, and you know, part of it, I mean, I'm not saying your body had nothing to do with it, it had plenty to do with it. And your body was by that time well enough trained that you, it could allow you to sure. think about what was happening in a different way and not just feeling in pain and I can't do this and I'm out of breath, you know. You, so you got to a point where you could begin to develop the way your brain managed this transformed body. And, but it was partly your brain was, you know, our brains grow and, and reconfigure every night when we, when we go to sleep, we, you know, cut off certain synapses and add others. Mm-hmm. And so our brains change too. And so I'm guessing that your, your body was in training, but so was your brain. Yeah, well, I would, I would characterize it as being a heightened state of absorption, being very absorbed in the activity, but perhaps not necessarily disassociated Mm-hmm. So, I mean, mm-hmm. maybe this is semantics and it gets into a, a, a conversation around the differences between hypnosis, flow state, and, and also something I wanna talk about, which is mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Okay. Being present with the state that you're in. Sure. And that's, that's different. I've heard you characterize the differences being that mindfulness is a practice, whereas hypnosis is a tool to solve a problem. So talk a little bit about that. Yes, yeah, I think it is. And I, I think partly 
you got to a point where it was very difficult, but it wasn't a struggle. You know, you weren't worried that your body was going to let you down or you were going to get hurt, but you also um, could kind of, you know, be the conductor of the symphony, not, you know, and you knew that the players were able to play their pieces properly. So it was... I, it, it allowed you to have a certain level of comfort and then impose that level of comfort on your body. So it became coordinated, not a struggle. You're, you, mm-hmm. know, you're, you knew your, the, the parts of your body could do what they had to do. And, you're, and I, I've talked to concert pianists who said, when I'm, if, if I actually start thinking while I'm playing about what, which finger is gonna do what, I'm screwed. Oh, of Nothing. course, right. He says, so I'm thinking about the tone and the pacing and a lot of, and the, you know, the emotion going along with it. That's what I'm thinking about. So you've gotta have a well-oiled machine that lets you do that. You have to be experienced enough with it. But you also have to, in your brain, be in that role of managing it at that level. Right. You know, it's not a little struggle. It's not you know the first time you're out training. It's uh, kind of coordinating the symphony in your body. Mindfulness, um, I think, is meant to be, there's less focus on control and more on sort of lack of control. You know, just the way you experience emotion is you don't fight it, and I think this is a good idea. You just let the emotions flow like a storm blowing by and see what happens. Because very often we create more trouble by fighting negative mm-hmm. feelings than by just having them, saying, oh yeah, now how do I put that in perspective? And so I do think that mindfulness is meant to be more of a way of being. You do the sort of body scan where you check out different parts of your body and how they're feeling and cultivating compassion, which is an important part of mindfulness that you try to think about situations or people who may irritate you or make you angry or something and develop compassion for them. And that's a very important practice too, that in in hypnosis, that's not you know a major feature, although your openness to accepting new input from the hypnotist is a kind of compassion for them. You're saying, I know this isn't me and I'm gonna trust that he or she is doing something that will help me not hurt me. Yeah, it does, it does feel like there is some shared DNA there uh, and 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 there is a sense that mindfulness can be used as a tool to solve a problem. I mean, I had Judd Brewer in here. I know that you know him, I and do. he's got a whole thing about mindfulness in the context of of habit formation, smoking cessation. He's got his own app for that, mm-hmm. and it seems like it could be applied towards the same ends that hypnosis can be. But you're getting there through different routes. Is that well, accurate? yes, I think that's true. Judd Brewer's study is the one I talked about mindfulness turning down activity in the posterior mm-hmm. cingulate cortex. That's his work, it's very good work. I think, you know, mindfulness is Eastern and hypnosis is Western. That is, you know, it's not meant to be there to do, to, to accomplish something, to solve a problem. That's kind of an unmindful thing yeah. to do. It's meant to just be an experience that will help you. And, and you know, in Buddhist thinking, detach from this sort of transitory connection to a persona that we have from time to time. That's the way the Buddhists think about it. Uh, whereas hypnosis is very much, this is you, this is your life, this is what you got, this is your body, figure out how to use it as well as you can. And it's more you know, problem oriented, you're right. It's, it, do it for a purpose, which is a typical Western way to approach things. Whereas right. the Eastern people would What's say, that's goal? your problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you gotta let go of yeah, that. Yeah, it's really a philosophical distinction. Yes, it in is. In many and, ways. And, but it means a respect for different traditions and, and you know, I'm very impressed and glad that mindfulness has has achieved so much attention and popularity in this country. Mm-hmm. We associate hypnosis 
with you know the idea that you need a guide and certainly a guide is important, but we do have the capacity to induce this state ourselves. So let's talk about self-hypnosis and maybe sure. we can do that in the context of Reverie, your app and, and sure. you know, how we should be thinking about how we can incorporate this into our own lives. Thanks, well, that's what I'd hope to do. You know, I began to realize, uh, Rich, and I think, you know, there are things, I think unfortunately the pandemic has forced us into this. You know, we have mm -hmm. to, we, we used to think that doing good psychotherapy is all about person to person, you know, looking at one another across the room and having feelings and correcting distortions. And I do that, I think it's important, but I, I think there are elements of various psychotherapies that are much more disseminable than we mm -hmm. than we think, and that's what we're that's the challenge now. And I thought, you know, I've used hypnosis with about seven thousand people in my career. That's a lot of people, but I've learned things that I'm convinced can help a lot more people than that. And I want sort of my legacy to be to spread the wealth to help people get what they can, even if they're not sitting in the office with me. And so mm -hmm. we designed Reverie to be interactive. Um, so that it's not simply listen to a recording and do something, but rather I suggest you do something. I ask, you know, are you, is your left hand feeling lighter than your right or not? They give an answer, we analyze it with AI, and then they get a different suggestion based on what they just told us. Oh, that's us. interesting. So it is, it, it changes. Each person's experience is different depending on how they responded to us. And so I tried to make it as much like what happens in my office as I could, but also share the strategies, You know, focus on what you're for and on what you're against, recognize your ability to transform perception and make your body comfortable. And so the, the apps are each about 12 to 15 minutes long, interactive, we ask you to rate before and after how your level of stress is or your level of pain is, we're getting a 35% reduction in stress in the first 15 minutes after people do wow. this. And we're getting a 25% reduction in pain. We get one out of five people stop smoking. So people, and people can tell right away. I mean, what I really am happy about is they'll know, is this helping me or not? If it is good, keep doing it. If it's not, maybe try some more. But if you don't want to, that's fine too. So, and we have some uh, hypnotic minutes too. We have some things where people just take a minute or two to reinforce what they've learned before. And a minute isn't too long to do that. And we're finding that like 40% of people with the hypnotic minutes feel better just after a minute of re-engaging in that state, you know? And we, we find, you mentioned earlier that, you know, people, if they just have a memory or a smell or a sound of something, an old song or something, it changes their mental state and they mm -hmm. kind of get back in that mode. And that's what we're finding with Reverie too, that people can just dip back into the experience and get a lot of the benefit from it very quickly. So I hope it will help spread the wealth, help people learn from it, try it out, see what it feels like and uh, and hopefully feel better. Yeah. The that's fascinating and 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 quite a service. So I Thank I you. commend you for that. Um, and you. you know, and you describing that, I I can't help but think about the induction phase. We talked a bit a bit about like breath work and how that can help induce the state. But I also assume that the choice of words is very important. And there's a lot of science and and your experience that's gone into. We say this at this point, and now we say this. So talk a little bit about like how you make those choices and how that, you know, w what that's doing to our brains and our bodies to kind of create the, the preferred receptivity. Sure, well, I try to make the language simple, clear. I want people to feel when they're going into the hypnotic state, feel what they're doing when they're in it and feel what it means to come out of it. So I wanna be clear about that. 
I want to use language that um, focuses more on what people are for than what they're against, that tends to stir engagement rather than rejection or a sense of failure. I want mm-hmm. people to have an experience that allows them to get the best of whatever their ability is and see how they how they respond to it. So I, I try to be positive, clear, simple, and straightforward about, about the way I tell people what to do. Um, and I think in the hypnosis, there has been a lot of sort of mystification of what you have to say and how long it has to take. You know, I used to be taught early on, you have to take 20, 25 minutes to get people counting upstairs and downstairs and all kinds of stuff. And my, I myself wouldn't want to devote that much time to that, you know, and it's not necessary. So mm-hmm. the other thing is I try to make it fairly rapid and efficient, you know, you do it here. If you've got the ability, do it, see what it feels like, and then come out of it and be clear with yourself when you're doing it and when you've stopped. Right. And if you're somebody who has a, a, a low receptivity to hypnosis, can you get a refund? on the, Like if you're just somebody who can't be hypnotized and you're like, this is not working for me. Listen, this costs so little to yeah. begin with it. We, and by the way, the, the app can be downloaded from the app store, R-E-V-E-R-I. Uh, and we're building, it's an iOS app now, we're building an Android app and then you can send to our website, www.reverie.com, a request that you be notified when the Android app is up and running, it, it isn't yet. Yeah, cool. um, so we try to use it in a way that um, makes it accessible to people, but also we accept and they accept if it's helping them good, if it's not, do something else, sure. that's fine. And, and the, the one other thing I'd mention is, the book I wrote with my father was called Trance and Treatment, Clinical Uses of Hypnosis. And the idea is that they're related, but they're separate things. So what you do, people, because when people are in a trance, they concentrate intently, they reduce their critical judgment. Um, you wanna be sure that the therapeutic strategy you're using is pretty good. Uh, you don't want to suggest to them something in that receptive attentive state that maybe is a bad idea to begin with. Mm-hmm. And so I would say that even for some people who aren't hypnotizable at all, they can benefit from the strategy, from the way we're approaching the problem. And and so there are some people who aren't hypnotizable, but if you just sit there and listen to me for a few minutes, you may take on a new point of view about how to deal with an old problem. Yeah. So rather than fighting food, you eat with respect for your body. You focus on feeding your body the way you would feed your baby or your dog or cat you know, put in it what's good for it. And that makes you feel good about it. You can eat like a gourmet. You can eat less, but enjoy eating more. That seems paradoxical, but it really isn't. Mm. You know, most of the time when we were watching television or playing with our phone or something, I had a, a, a friend who, who started the Reverie app. He said he, uh, he felt terrible when he looked at a picture of a party and somebody was wearing the same shirt he was, only he had this huge belly. And he said, I realized it was me, you know? (laughs) So he started, he'd used the app. He started eating with respect. He lost 40 pounds. He's now walking to work from Palo Alto to Mountain View and back. He doesn't ride in a car anymore. And he's kept the weight off and he's going around proselytizing about it now. And he he wasn't that hypnotizable, but the approach Mm. was something that appealed to him cognitively. And he's using it cognitively and changing a whole bunch of aspects of his behavior. Yeah, reverie, reverence, self-reverence. Well, I like that. Um, uh, you know, I can't help but think about the similarities between that notion of self-care, self-love, and loving-kindness meditation. Right? Like, 
you're, you're, you're practicing a form of meditation that is sort of thinking about or, or, or wishing for or, or practicing loving kindness towards others, but also towards yourself, right? With I, reverence. I, I love that connection with reverence. I hadn't thought of it, but I'll, believe me, I'll still- Oh, really? I'll so, when, so where does the name come from that? Rever- I just well, assume it, that it's it, more reverie like a dream. Oh, you know? rever- I got you. Yes, reverie. With me at the end. Well, here you um, have the double entendre. Yeah, right I like it. Um, but, uh, you know, I think um, the difference is that in mindfulness, you learn to be compassionate for yourself through comp- contemplating compassion for others. And the technique we use in hypnosis is having compassion for yourself and for your own body and thinking of your body the way you would think of some other trusting innocent creature that depends upon you. Mm. And so it is more, you know, if you think about it, Eastern cultures are more sociocentric. They, you know, they are their social environment. You know, they, they're, they don't separate themselves in the same way that we do. Here, we're splendid individuals, you know, and freedom is everything. God forbid you should wear a mask, you know. Um, and, right. and that's not, I mean, people were wearing masks in Japan, you know, 10 years before sure. there was COVID. So I do think they reflect cultural differences that, that in, in Eastern cultures, having A, they don't value individuality, individuality in the same way we do, but B, it is more natural to cultivate compassion for your community, for people around you. Here, it's more natural to cultivate compassion for yourself, for individuals. Mm-hmm. And so you learn to be more compassionate to yourself and to your body with hypnosis. But I, so it's, the, the, the notion of compassion is very important, but it's sort of implemented in a different way that is, I think, culturally appropriate. Yeah, yeah, that, that cultural distinction. I mean, the idea that, you know, we would never treat we would never treat other people the way that we treat ourselves. Right. Is, is right. you know, there's something kind of inherently American about that? I think. <laughs> right. I'm afraid I have to confess. Yeah. Yes, that's true. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your lab. I mean, in addition to being a clinician, you're mm-hmm. also a researcher. Right. You referenced some of the work that you're doing with Huberman Lab around mm-hmm. breath. Um, what are what are some of the other studies that you're involved in right now? And and also like what are what are some of the studies that you wish to see performed that would give us a lot more clarity and kind of you know help with mass adoption of this modality? Well, uh, there are a couple of things. We're, we are uh, doing some studies on the effects of the Reverie app um, because we need to provide an evidence base. Sure, you're getting all really these data sets Works. Now. That's right. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have one study of 15,900 people showing a reduction of uh, you know 35% in stress in the first 15 minutes that's you know and we're doing more of that we need to do studies with control conditions which are always hard to come up with but we'll we'll find a way so i want to do more studies on what the actual effect of using reverie is compared with other things like meditation we're comparing meditation mm-hmm. and breath work uh, with Andrew and uh, finding some very interesting things that breathwork in very short pieces of breathwork, like five minutes a day for a month, are having pretty big effects on people's anxiety and stress and mm. sleep as well. So that's one thing we're doing. I'm collaborating um, with a wonderful young colleague at Stanford, Nolan Williams, who's doing transcranial magnetic stimulation. And so we're actually, he he loved the idea of taking on the challenge, can we change a fixed neural trait like hypnotizability? And so we're using TMS. He was just on the Today Show the other day showing how he's using it for 
depression and suicidal thinking actually very effective. What's TMS? I'm sorry, transcranial magnetic stimulation. Mm -hmm. Got it. So, you know, hypnosis was animal magnetism 250 years ago. This is real magnetism applied locally to the brain. And if you know, you know that electric current when it flows through a wire or a nerve generates a magnetic field around it that circumvents, circles the wire in Mm -hmm. the perpendicular direction. Conversely, a magnetic field induces changes in the electrical current in the neuron. And so you can activate or inhibit a brain region very precisely uh, using these transcranial magnetic stimulators. And he's been very effective in treating depression. I've seen patients say, I feel like my old self after two years. Not that I feel better, I feel like my oh, old that's self. That's super interesting. And, and we're stimulating the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and we've got some preliminary evidence that we can enhance hypnotizability, at least transiently. Wow. So it's the first time we've been able to change a neural trait. And the idea is we've been studying it with fibromyalgia. We've got support from the National Center for Complementary and Integrative Health. And we're hoping that it could be an augmentation to a hypnotic treatment for fibromyalgia and other kinds of treatment resistant pain. So we're exploring that both to understand better the, the brain mechanism, uh, but also as a potential new treatment uh, for that. Wow, that's amazing. And, and I like the kind of connective tissue dating all the way back to Mesmer, right? Like Mesmer <laughs> almost had it right. Oh. He just, you know, he was a little bit off on part of it with the bit. fluid thing, but right. like, here we are. <laughs> that's right. A yeah. little ahead of his time, but <laughs> not in a way that always helped. Um, in addition to Reverie, if somebody is is inspired or intrigued by everything that, that you've shared today, and thank you for that, uh, sure. how does one go about finding a you know an appropriate clinical hypnotist so they're not you know falling under the prey of some stage hypnotist if they want right. to explore this? Right. Well, stay out of theaters, but <laughs> the the. I would say the the important thing is to find somebody who is trained and licensed in a clinical discipline. So clinical psychologist, physician, dentist, social worker with marriage and family counseling credentials. Mm -hmm. Um, Find someone whose primary thing is that they're a trained clinician and who also is trained in hypnosis. There are, uh, there's two good professional societies, three good professional societies. The Society for Clinical and Experimental Hypnosis, you can look up sceh.us. The American Society for Clinical Hypnosis, uh, asch.net, I think. And um, there's a Division 31 of the American Psychological Association. They're all licensed and trained psychologists who use hypnosis. Mm. So your, your primary search should be for a, good licensed and trained professional and then someone who knows something about hypnosis. And there are now websites that can help you identify those people. Psychology Today has one and others who can help you find someone who has, and and you'll see what kind of professional training they have. Yeah, that's great. We'll put those links up in the show notes, of course. And before I let you go, I was remiss in not asking you about the work that you've done with breast cancer Patients. Huh. I mean, cancer is really, you know, that was, that was, you know, really has been, I don't know if it still is, but initially was a big part of your focus, right? Yes, that's right. So, uh, you know, I wanted to give you the opportunity to talk a little bit about that because I think that's, that's really powerful. Well, thank you. When I, when I came to Stanford, um, I was recruited in part by Irv Yalom, who is, you know, the leading figure in group psychotherapy and who was working on a book on existential psychotherapy. And he said to me, you know, um, the existential philosophers have read, written that you don't really live authentically until you face the possibility of non-being. 
And if that's true, mm. then perhaps a period of facing your death could be a period of growth. So, you know, that maybe we've been approaching this from the wrong way, just make them less anxious and depressed, but help them grow. And he said, would you like to co-lead a group with me? So this is like my first year as an assistant professor and the world's authority in group therapy says, would you co-lead a group? You think for a second and you say, yes, so I did. And I loved this group. You know, these women were dealing with very difficult things, but they weren't getting demoralized. You know, they were getting remoralized. Mm -hmm. They would grieve when somebody from the group died. And we were warned by some oncologists that, you know, you demoralize them because, you know, the, the two-year survival was 50%. They're going to see other people die as though cancer patients, you know, don't understand that they could die from their cancer. The first thing everybody thinks, half of all people diagnosed with cancer live to die of something else. More women with breast cancer die of heart disease than breast cancer. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's it's not a great thing, but you know, uh, people can deal with it. And I was so impressed at how women faced their own mortality, but differently by seeing it in someone else. You know, you can see things in somebody else that, that you're going through, but you can't see for yourself. Um, we had one uh, woman who came in and said, you know, I think it's time for me to sort of hasten my exit. You know, she was talking about assisted suicide because my husband's a banker, but he's not a teller. He doesn't talk. And I think mm -hmm. he's had it with me, it's just too much. Now his husband wasn't in the room and one of the rules Irv says is, you know, here and now in the room. So I said, I wonder if she's asking us a question. Are we tired of her? Are we wishing she weren't here? And she just got, you know, covered with praise. She was always beautifully dressed, even though she was clearly very sick, she was getting closer to death. Matched accessories, makeup, everything. And they admired how, how well she looked after herself and her body, even though she was that sick. So they, they made it clear to her they wanted her to live as long as possible. And mm. she did not shorten her life. She died about four months later. And in her will, it was written that they sent a bus to take us all from the building where the group met to her memorial service. Wow. And another woman in the group said, you know, uh, looking, being in this group is like looking into the Grand Canyon when you're afraid of heights. You know, if you fell down, it'd be a disaster, but you feel better about yourself because you're able to look. I can't say I feel serene, but I can look at it. And um, it was very touching to hear her say that and to recognize that that's what was going on, that they were feeling like experts in living and experts in dealing with the disease. They felt better about themselves because they could help other people. You know, we do that in medicine all the time. When I was training at Boston City Hospital and learning to do lumbar punctures and things, our, our, what we used to joke with one another is it's see one, screw one, do one, teach one, you know, that that's the progression. You feel better about yourself because you've learned something that you can use to help someone else. And that's what they were learning and that's what they were doing. So we found at the end of a year in this randomized trial that the women in our weekly support groups that ended with self-hypnosis, by the way, we taught them to grieve losses, to picture, mm -hmm the loss of someone who died, and at the same time picture on the other side of the screen, one thing she left with you that's still within you. And they were half as anxious and depressed by the end of the year as the control group. They had half the pain the control group from doing the self-hypnosis exercises on very low amounts of medication. And the big surprise was that I 
got the idea because people were talking about wishing away your cancer and we weren't wishing it away at all. We were saying, you've got to deal with it, that they lived 18 months longer on average than the mm. control. And we have replicated, we tried to replicate that study at a time when the hormonal treatments got to be a lot better than they were originally. We found that women with non-hormonally responsive cancer lived longer in the treatment group, but overall we did not replicate that. But we've seen, we've done a meta-analysis recently of all the studies on psychotherapy and survival and find a significant survival advantage for cancer patients randomized to various kinds of supportive psychotherapy. And there's one published in the New England Journal recently with dying patients, patients uh, entering palliative care with lung cancer who live four months longer if they got this palliative care support facing their death than if they didn't. So, you know, and we know married cancer patients overall live four months longer than unmarried cancer patients. Yeah. What's interesting about that for me and it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about trauma and and volition, like the the kind of welcoming into the experience a level of acceptance, and that this idea that you know we think that if we if we deny it or we pretend it doesn't exist or we ignore it, that that will reduce our anxiety. But in truth, it's quite the opposite, right? Like in in kind of embracing the you know the the harsh reality of the circumstances ends up reducing the anxiety because you're, you, you, you learn to be in a, in a place of cohabitation with it, I guess, you can, right? You can face it. Yeah. The, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know. You know, at least you can see aspects of it and put it into perspective. There've been some interesting recent studies of people dying of cancer taking psilocybin in the coupled with psychotherapy. And it kind of surprises me to tell you the truth. You know, I wouldn't want to have a bad trip when I was, you know, facing imminent mortality. Out. And the majority of them, and they get careful psychotherapy as well during this report, I could just see it from a different point of view. And it helped me feel that my capacity to live, to experience things was so precious and I still have it. And I'm gonna lose it, but I still have it. And they found it reassuring. So I think you're absolutely right that having the strength and ability to face it strengthens you, it doesn't weaken you. Mm. Is there a sense of enhanced receptivity to hypnosis when somebody has uh, undergone some kind of psychedelic experience. And we, I don't wanna do a whole podcast on psychedelics. Yeah, we're right, we're right. rounding this out now and that's a yeah. whole other discussion, it but is, yeah. I know there's a lot of emerging science here and, and some interesting things that are happening. There is, and there's more interest and in, we're building a program at Stanford to do it. And there are a number of other excellent places that have programs yeah. and that are taking it seriously. I think there is one message though, that is pretty strong. And that is that changing mental states can in and of itself be therapeutic. You see things from a different point of view. You know, you make the mistake of reading your email at 11 o'clock at night and you get some nasty email and you think, oh God, what am I gonna do? And the next morning after a night of sleep, you say, oh, that, like him again, you know, I'll deal with that. Just being able to see the same problem from a different mental perspective in and of itself helps enhance your coping ability. Which it, is what hypnosis is and, and which is what a psychedelic experience induces. Bingo, and, and sleep too, you know, absolutely yeah. same thing. So, I mean, we can't live without sleep. So we, our brains are constructed to experience different states of consciousness and there's a reason for it. It helps us, it helps us deal with stress. It doesn't, it's not a problem, it's a potential solution. 
Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see, uh, to kind of pay attention to the research. That's yes. it's interesting that Stanford's doing that now. Yeah. I mean, I know yeah. Johns Hopkins is associated with that. That's but, right. You know, right. this is now becoming more mainstream. It is. Yeah. Well, I hope um, hypnosis will too. <laughs> yeah. So on that note, as we kind of end this thing, yeah. um, you know, leave us with some parting thoughts about hypnosis, self-hypnosis for the person who's listening or watching, who's interested in this what would be a good way for them to begin or wrap their heads around how this might benefit their lives? Well, you know, consider the kind of problem you have and whether it's something you're, you're itching to do something about. Think about situations in your life already where a change in state of consciousness has had some beneficial effect. So you may have some experience already that you could see an old problem from a new point of view and then find a way to give it a try. You know, it's one of these things where there really aren't any side effects the way there are with meds. And um, we're just taking a little bit of time to try out transforming your experience of a problem might make a difference. And Reverie is one, there are other, there are many good professionals who can help you with it. There are things to read as well about hypnosis. Um, There's our book, Trance and Treatment, but there are others too. And I think, you sort of put yourself in an in experimental, it's a low cost, rapid experimental experience that could make a big difference. Mm. Well, I appreciate you coming here to talk to me. Uh, a lot pleasure. of respect for the work that you're doing. I think it's Thank super you. important and it's been a privilege to hear about this world and, and learn about your world, so thank you. Thank you very much. Well, you've set an example for personal transformation that a lot of people have followed and I really appreciate that. Yeah, through my own version of self-hypnosis on some <laughs> level, I suppose. But anyway, um, I'd love to talk to you more and, and learn Great. more about this. So uh, perhaps uh, part two at some point when it works out for you. So Terrific. thank you. Thank you. All right, peace. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. I truly hope you enjoyed the conversation. To learn more about today's guest, including links and resources related to everything discussed today, visit the episode page at richroll.com where you can find the entire podcast archive, as well as podcast merch, my books, Finding Ultra, Voicing Change in the Plant Power Way, as well as the Plant Power Meal Planner at meals.richroll.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on YouTube and leave a review and or comment. Supporting the sponsors who support the show is also important and appreciated. And sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends or on social media is of course awesome and very helpful. And finally, for podcast updates, special offers on books, the meal planner, and other subjects, please subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find on the footer of any page at richroll.com. Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo with additional audio engineering by Kale Curtis. The video edition of the podcast was created by Blake Curtis with assistance by our creative director, Dan Drake. Portraits by Davey Greenberg and Grayson Wilder. Graphic and social media assets, courtesy of Jessica Miranda, Daniel Solis, Dan Drake, and AJ Akpodiete. Thank you, Georgia Whaley, for copywriting and website management. And of course, our theme music was created by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Harry Mathis. Appreciate the love, love the support. See you back here soon. Peace. Plants. Namaste.